You aren't going to believe who's here to preach this morning. Speaking of our Carmel campus, it's our Carmel campus pastor, Steve Wallen. Let's give him a hand. There he is. Here I is. Hi. Hi, how are you? Good. Good to see you. You too. You guys do this every Sunday too? Every Sunday. Every Sunday? Yeah. I'm over there every Sunday. They, they don't think I'm over there every Sunday because I've been over here so many Sundays lately. It's so good to be back with you guys. Hey, if you have your Bibles, open them to Nehemiah chapter 1. Um, Nehemiah is kind of a tough book to find. It's at, in the Old Testament. It's after First and Second Chronicles, after Ezra. But if you get to Psalms, you've gone too far, so turn back to the left. Uh, if, you don't have, if you don't have a Bible, the easiest way to find it is either to get the Bible app on your phone and search Nehemiah. That's real easy. Or pick up this one that's on the seats around, and on the floor around you and turn to page 333 in this Bible. 333 is really easy to remember. Hey, have you ever had a task... Uh, a project, something that seemed so big, uh, so overwhelming, you really just didn't know how you were going to go about accomplishing that. You had something that maybe it was a God-given task even, something that you knew God has called you to do, uh, but you really wanted to do in your heart, but in your mind, you looked at it and thought, oh, this is a little overwhelming. I'm not quite sure how we're going to get this done. I don't really know if I, have, if I have what it takes to get this done. You had one of those? But when we launched our Carmel campus five years ago, it seemed like the natural thing to do. Uh, this campus, our Noblesville campus, was bursting at the seams. We were running three services, but we couldn't get the times right so that all three of the services were optimal and inviting. We either had a, an 8.30 service that nobody would come to, or we moved that to 9, but then that moved the third one to noon, and so nobody would come to that one, you know. So we were having a hard time finding places for everyone to sit. We knew we wanted to keep the size of our Sunday gatherings manageable and not grow and become a megachurch, not because there's anything wrong with megachurches. There's lots of great megachurches around Hamilton County, and we love them, and we partner with them, but it's just not Genesis, you know. It's just not who we are. We knew we wanted to go to Carmel. We knew that we'd been talking about multi-site. We knew that Carmel was the place uh, after Noblesville that most of our people were. It made the most sense. So when the right facility became available and it made financial sense, we, did, we had people there and decided that was the right thing. Uh, that was the thing that God had for us. But when we started to put the list together of everything that you need to do to launch a new campus, uh, well, it was three pages, 11 by 16, which is you know, pretty big, printed in eight-point font. And every line was a different task we had to do. And all the things that you would expect to be on there when you're launching a church were on there. Things like building walls and painting and, and, uh, and you know, buying communion supplies and buying microphones. But then there was other stuff that you don't really think about when you launch a church. Things like applying for sign permits and filling up the water softener and replacing those uh, little cakes they put in the bottom of urinals to make them smell good. Which, by the way, they should not call those cakes. Oh, man. Thanks for that. Our, the first service was a little, uh, a little unresponsive, so there was a lot more of them, but I can tell that you guys are bigger in spirit, so thanks for that. You know, the truth is that all of us have a God-given task in front of us. We may not recognize it, we may not want to admit it, but all of us probably have something uh, that the Lord has put on our heart, some kind of passion, some kind of desire, and, and that we probably, along with that, have some kind of list, uh, no matter what the task is in front of us. Maybe for you, it's raising your children to know and love Jesus. Maybe it's growing in your own walk with Christ. Uh, maybe it's giving up a habit or starting a new one. Now, maybe it's starting a new ministry. And with all of those things, there may be a list of things that you've got to accomplish to make that happen. And, and we can have a tendency, I think, sometimes to look at that list and look at everything that needs to be done and throw up our hands 
God, I'm not the right person to do this. I don't have the background. I don't have the knowledge. I don't have the skills. Uh, I don't have the people around me to help me do it. I can't do this alone. And sometimes we can want to give up. Well, we're in this series called Humans of the Bible. You probably know by now, if you've been here at all, that what we've been doing is looking at uh, people in the Bible as real people, not characters in a storybook. They're real people, and we're telling their real stories and talking about how we can learn from their stories, how their stories can influence our stories. And I just want to stop and say right now, uh, in, in the light of all of the news we've had in the last couple of days, that the people, the humans in the Bible are real people, and they're real people from all walks of life. They're from different backgrounds, different countries, different races, different colors, and God used all of them to write this beautiful story. And I think we're going to get to heaven someday, those of us who are white suburban Americans, we're going to get to heaven and we're going to be surprised how unwhite heaven is. We're going to get there and we're going to go, whoa, this is what every tribe, every tongue, every nation looks like. And so, you know, I was just looking for this verse, I was kind of stalling here, but uh, you know, uh, the Apostle John wrote in uh, 1 John 4.10, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. And I just think about that. And God sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for everyone. And there is no room for hate in the kingdom of God. And so I just wanted to say that before we go, because we've got people from uh, every tribe, every tongue, every nation that are going to be in heaven together. And we need to start practicing that now. So the person I want to talk about, Thanks, Haley. The person I want to talk about today, the person I want to talk about today is the person of Nehemiah. You probably guessed that since I had you turn to the book of Nehemiah. So we're going to start with Nehemiah 1.1. And what we're going to see is a man who has a big task in front of him, a God-given task. And we're going to look at how he goes about carrying that out. Nehemiah 1.1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, where, while I was in the citadel of Susa. By the way, one of the ways that we can know that the Bible's not a fairy tale, that this is history, is because this is not how fairy tales start. Fairy tales start with once upon a time. This is a very specific, the words of Nehemiah, who his father was, what month, what year. And so we can go back and we can look at this. The month of Kislev is the third month in the Hebrew calendar. It would have happened uh, today in modern day times. It's like between November and December. Uh, we would know that it was the 20th year. He's talking about the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, who was king of Babylon at the time. And so uh, Artaxerxes started his reign in 465 BC. So this would have been 445 BC. We know very specifically where this happened. By the way, there's no doubt, even in the minds of secular historians, there's no doubt that Nehemiah was a real person, that he was a contemporary of King Artaxerxes, and this story really happened. And even the most anti-Christian historians tell us that this piece of scripture is the best evidence we have of the life of Nehemiah. And, and, and then the book before that, Ezra, is the best evidence we have of his counterpart, Ezra. And so uh, this is history. This is not a fairy tale. This is why we're doing this series. Verse 2, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. So here's what's happened. God uh, told uh, Abraham that his people would one day be in exile. They would be strangers in a strange land. They would be foreigners. And this happened, and it happened for about 400 years. The nation of Israel was in exile uh, to Babylon. But about 100 years before this story, uh, the Babylonians started letting people go back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. And then uh, just a few years before this, this book happened, uh, we see a man named Ezra 
who leads a large group back to Jerusalem to live. This is probably the group that Nehemiah is asking about, this large group of people that went from Babylon, from Persia, from modern-day Iran, that's where Susa is, uh, to, back to Jerusalem. He's probably asking about that specific group. Uh, and so he, he asked this question, and they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Nehemiah is really bothered by what he hears. The people are not in a good place. The walls around Jerusalem are in disrepair. He's bothered by that. He's got this, he be, this becomes his all-consuming passion. What we're going to see over the next uh, 12, 11 chapters of Nehemiah is this man who is uh, consumed with this desire to rebuild his homeland. Now, he's never lived there, but his ancestors are from there. His ancestors are buried there. All of his family is from there. And so that's going to become his all-consuming passion. My question is, do you have an all-consuming passion? Do you have something that God has given you, a, a ministry, a particular country? Maybe it's uh, you know, raising your kids to know and love Christ. Maybe it's a school or a neighborhood. Nehemiah was passionate about Jerusalem. He was passionate about these people that were in his family that had been called back home and making it a safe place for them to live and to raise their children. So how did Nehemiah go about this task? I mean, think about this. This is a, a man who has a huge task that God has put in front of him, and, and not really one he was prepared for. We find out at the end of chapter 1 that Nehemiah's job is the cupbearer to the king. And so his job is to take a cup of wine and bring it to the king, to taste it, to make sure it's not poisoned, and then give it to the king. Not really the best training for leading a construction crew of people, right? It's kind of like having your degree in finance and becoming a pastor. Uh, it's my best best analogy I could come up with. Uh, so how did this seemingly unequipped man take on this incredibly daunting task? How did he go about his task? Well, I put four ways in your notes if you want to follow along. Number one is this, he prayed. For Nehemiah, every step of the journey starts with prayer. We can see that in verse four. Again, it says, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, we have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now, what he's doing here is a prayer of repentance. He's, he's confessing our sin before he ever goes to ask God for anything. He's repenting of their sin. Any great effort in the name of God has to start with repentance. You, you need to understand that God will never bless sin. And so if we are in sin and we're asking God to, to help us do something great, he's going to wait for us to repent of our sin in most cases before we'll do that. He, we have to repent. Verse 8, remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. There's another example of that. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this servant, 
and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I just want you to see the importance of prayer for Nehemiah. So important that the very first thing he did when God put this passion on his heart is he prayed about it. And he prayed and repented and he prayed for favor in God's eyes. You know, a reminder to us that how important prayer is before any great task, any great accomplishment before us, before any great project, uh, we're going to have to pray. You know, we see that in the life of Jesus, who's our model for life and ministry. On 33 separate occasions in the New Testament, we see Jesus going off to pray. He prayed before choosing the 12 apostles. He prayed before he fed the 5,000. He prayed all night before he walked on water, and he spent most of his last night on earth praying. He prayed for his disciples. He prayed for us. He prayed that uh, God would take that cup of suffering away from him, but then he said, not my will, but yours be done. I mean, Jesus had less than one day left on earth, and he spent most of it praying. If prayer was that important for Jesus, how much more is it important for us? But Nehemiah didn't just pray. The second thing is he prepared. He prepared. We see this in Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan in the 20th century, or 20th year, 20th century. 20th century Nisans are different than the 20th year Nisan. You can't drive the month of Nisan. Um, In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. You can tell this is an all-consuming passion for Nehemiah, right? When he's doing his job, he's sad. Even when he's doing his job, the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. There it is again. He prays before even making this request. I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside me, beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. But Nehemiah wasn't done because he knew there was some preparation required. And so here's what he says. Verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governors of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Look at how Nehemiah prepared for this task. He had already thought through what he was going to need, and he prepared. He was ready before he made the ask. Now, I don't know why we sometimes think that when we pray, our job is done. I think it's because, maybe it's because in many of our greatest endeavors, these God-sized tasks where we accomplish the most, God does all the heavy lifting. There's no doubt about that. But in many cases, he asks us for some buy-in. It's almost like the ante in poker. Like we've got to show that we're serious about this request. Just look back through scripture and you see this pattern. I mean, God sent the ram, but Abraham had to carry the wood. God parted the sea, but Moses had to raise a staff in faith. God saved Nineveh, but Jonah had to go and preach first. God sent the rain, but Elisha had to dig the trenches. 
And just a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how God transformed Paul's life. There's no question that God did all the work, but Paul had to be obedient for that to happen. Time after time, we see that God blesses preparation. Now, this is not a God helps those who help themselves kind of message, okay? This is a don't bother to ask if you're not willing to do your part kind of message. So it's like the man who fell on hard times. He, he lost his job. He had bills piling up. Uh, he was getting close to bankruptcy. His house was in the early stage of foreclosure. He didn't know where to turn, didn't know what to do. But one day he was walking through his hometown and he walked by the church where he used to attend as a kid. He hadn't been in there in years and years. And he walks inside and he sits down in one of the pews and he starts to pray. And he says, Lord, I don't know where to turn. I'm out of luck. God, would you just answer my prayer and help me to win the Powerball this weekend? And he walks out feeling pretty good because he's prayed about this. And the Powerball drawing on Saturday comes and goes, and sure enough, he doesn't win. And so the next week, he goes back into the church on Tuesday. He said, Lord, I don't know if you heard me last time. Uh, There's another drawing on Wednesday. Would you please help me to win the Powerball? And he walks out of the church again feeling good about himself. I'm going to the Lord. I'm doing the things I'm supposed to do. And he walks away, and of course, he doesn't win on Wednesday night. So he comes back on Saturday, and he sits in the pew and says, God, I am desperate. I don't know if you've heard me. And just then, the roof opens of the church, and the clouds part, and this beam of light comes down on this man, and this voice from heaven shouts down to him, buy a ticket. (laughs) We've got to do the preparation before we do the prayer. Preparation and prayer make great teammates. They're the, the John Stockton and Carl Malone of accomplishing great things, if you're an NBA fan. I guess maybe it's football season. So they're the Jeff Saturday and Peyton Manning of accomplishing great things. They go together. They're great teammates. Preparation and prayer work really well together. So Nehemiah thought through what it was going to take. He prayed and he prepared. But then there was another key to his accomplishing success. Let's go on. Uh, Nehemiah 2.10 says this. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Now, this is our first clue that Nehemiah is going to face some opposition. He's going to face some opposition in this big task. Chances are, if you have a big task, if you have a big God-given thing in front of you, if you have an all-consuming passion, at some point, you're going to face some opposition. Why? Well, let's look at Nehemiah. Nehemiah faced opposition because he was living in a strange land. His family was Jewish, but he was living in Susa. He probably didn't look like the people around him. He didn't fit in. People around him didn't know what to think about him. He didn't do the same things that they did. He didn't value the same things that they did. He didn't pursue the same things that they did. When you live in a strange place where people don't understand you, you're going to face opposition. By the way, Christians, did you know that you are living in a strange land, that you're not from here? The Bible says that you are citizens of heaven, and you may be living on earth here and now, but this is not your home, that there is a better place waiting for you when you're done here. And the citizens of this earth sometimes are going to think you're crazy for what you're trying to accomplish, for the beliefs you have, for the values you have. But the best model, the good news is, the best model that we have of how to live as a foreigner is our Savior, Jesus Christ. How's this for a description? Isaiah 53 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. 
he was despised and we held him in low esteem. If you're facing opposition today, Jesus knows what you're experiencing. He, he walks with us every awkward step of the way. But Nehemiah didn't just face opposition because he was a foreigner. He also faced opposition because he had an enemy. He had enemies, in fact. Sambalat and Tobiah, along with some others, Geshem that we'll read about here in a minute, uh, didn't want his work to succeed. Nehemiah 4.7 says, But when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. Nehemiah had enemies who were determined to stop the good work that he was doing. Did you know that you have an enemy too? If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a very real enemy who will stop at nothing to get you to put down your work and forget about it. He'll do whatever it takes to disrupt, distress, or destroy your ministry, your family, or you. You know, our enemy did his best to try to take down our church this year. And in some ways, we're still feeling the effects of a spiritual attack that happened on our staff this spring. And while many people have forgiven or moved on or forgotten or weren't even aware that it happened or weren't even affected by it, there are still some of us who are dealing with the consequences, very real, very painful consequences, and will be for months and years to come. That's why it's so critical. It's so critical for us to be on the lookout for our enemy. The Bible says that sin is crouching at your door that it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. If we give the enemy a foothold, he will stick his whole leg in there. So what did Nehemiah do? How did he face up to this opposition? Well, the third thing is he refused to stop. He refused to stop. He didn't give up. We see in Nehemiah 4.16, from that day on, this is from the day that he found out that they were plotting to bring down his work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Nehemiah didn't stop the work just because of the opposition, and you shouldn't either. Now, when your task is raising kids, you want to raise your kids to be uh, the best followers of Jesus they can. You want to raise them to know and love God. Don't quit. There's a lot of people that are going to give up on your kids in their lives. You can't be one of them. Don't quit. doesn't matter how bad they've messed up. doesn't matter how bad you've messed up. It doesn't matter how bad things seem. You can't give up on them because everybody else might. If your task is making disciples, you can't give up. Yeah, I know people are stupid. They do stupid things. They make it really hard to love them sometimes. But we can't give up. The whole world is quitting on them. We can't be the ones that quit too. If your task is a certain ministry or neighborhood or a school and you're facing opposition, don't quit. Don't give up. It's so easy to give in. It's so easy to conform to the ways of this world, to conform to our culture, to, to stop fighting the, the tidal wave of bad influence that's out there and just go with the flow. You can't. When your enemy is attacking, you got to fight back. Keep your sword at your side. Do your work with one hand and hold your weapon in the other. Uh, but remember, the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. Scripture tells us that they have divine power to conquer strongholds. 
The Lord has given you every protection, every weapon you need to fight against your enemy, but it's so easy, so easy to let your guard down. It's so easy to just give in and, I don't know, watch that TV show that's so vulgar that everybody's talking about because you don't want to feel left out when you get to work the next day. To, to listen to that music, even though you know the lyrics aren't right, but man, it's so catchy and it's got such a great beat. To go to that website, to, to flirt just a little. I mean, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's so easy. It's so easy to give in. It's so easy, but we can't give in. We can't give in even for a minute. In fact, it's probably good to look back now, back at Nehemiah 1, and see how this whole thing started for Nehemiah with a prayer of repentance. In chapter 1, he said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. And for some of us right now, for some of you in this room, man, the, the, the result of today, the big takeaway that you need to bring away from today is that you need to get on your knees before the Lord and say, I'm sorry. And we've got to turn from our sin and not look at those things again, not go to those places again, not see that person again, to unsheath those divine weapons that the Lord has given you and start taking down strongholds in our lives so that your enemy cannot have you, but you can rule over him. That's what Nehemiah did. And in fact, he used this one phrase that's so powerful. I just want to show you this. This is a gift to you today. This was a gift for me when I read it again this week. It's my favorite sentence in the entire book of Nehemiah. And we find it in Nehemiah chapter 6, uh, verse 1 through 4. It says, When word came to Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall, and not a gap in it was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sambalat and Geshem sent me this message. Come... Let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers with this reply, and this is the sentence. This is what you need to hold on to. He said this, uh, I am carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. I'm carrying on a great project, and I cannot go down. Why should I go down? Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? And for me this week, that was a gift to just... Realize that I had the freedom to be able to say to my opposition, no, hey, I'm carrying on something great. I'm doing something the Lord has given me. And I can't come down and be bothered with you right now. Nehemiah prayed. He prepared. He refused to stop, but that wasn't all. When the work was done, he celebrated. Celebrated. And God did some amazing things through Nehemiah. And he remembered that when you get to the end of this thing, it's time to look back and celebrate what he's done. You know, so many times we skip the celebration. We get to the end of the project, we get to the end of the road, and we think, well, what's next? You know, what's next? Uh, what's the next thing that God's got for me? You know, I'm training for a marathon right now. I know 43 of us here at Genesis Church are training for a marathon or a half marathon with Team World Vision. And we've got this big plan in front of us, this big program of running and strength training and all these things that we're supposed to do. And we look at it, and it can be a little overwhelming. But when we get to the end, when we get, done, get to that finish line on that day, and we've raised, what's our goal, $60,000 for World Vision's water projects. Which, by the way, if you want to be a part of that, teamworldvision.org, search Genesis Church. You can find a whole list of people that are there. Go give $50 to somebody today. Just do that. Um, but we'll get to the end of that. And what are we going to do at the finish line? We're going to celebrate. Why? Because the Lord has done something great in us and through us. And that's what Nehemiah did. He gets to the end of the road and he celebrates. Here's what Nehemiah 8 says. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, 
This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And whenever we accomplish something great, we've got to take time to celebrate and not celebrate our good works, but what the Lord Almighty has done for us. And that's what we're going to do next week at the Carmel campus as we think about our five-year anniversary. And we've had five great years of ministry, five years of lots of really cool stuff happening, but we haven't done it alone. In fact, you guys have sacrificed so much to get us where we are today. How many of you were here five years ago when we launched that Carmel campus? Raise your hand. Okay, a lot fewer than in the first service. Well, I want you to know that when we launched that campus, we sent 130 of the best and brightest from Noblesville over to Carmel. Well, not the best and brightest. We left the best and the brightest here. We took the second best and third brightest. <laughs> but, uh, but we took people who were leaders, who were servants, and I know who were friends. 130 of them over to the Carmel campus. And you guys sent them gladly. We took 130 kingdom workers and you sent them out gladly. And then you gave financially, as Ben said, that, that without your financial gifts, we couldn't be accomplishing what the Lord has accomplished in Carmel. Uh, we sent 130 people over there five years ago. This spring, we averaged, on a give, regular Sunday, we averaged 370 people at our Carmel campus in attendance, 130 to 370. On, on Easter Sunday, on Easter weekend, we had 580 in Carmel. You know, we took 130 from here. We had 580, but those aren't the numbers I get the most excited about because we've got 150 people or more serving on a team at our Carmel campus. We've got over 100 in connection groups at our Carmel campus, and we've had 88 baptisms in the last five years, and we celebrate every one of those because every number has a name, every name has a story, and every story matters to God. The Lord is on the move, and he's on the move here, and he's on the move in Carmel. And so we want to celebrate that. We need to be like Nehemiah and take time to look back and see what the Lord has done and celebrate. But I just wanted to say to you today, thank you, Noblesville Campus. Thanks for your support. Thanks for sending people. Thanks for sending your finances. Thanks for being generous. And thanks for continuing to do what you do here at the Noblesville Campus to help people find their way back to God. It's so important. When we celebrate next week, we're gonna, uh, we, we spent last week taking video of uh, four couples that came right about the time we launched that Carmel Campus who have been there uh, through the whole thing. Uh, we, we shot four stories. Uh, we're going to edit those together into one video we're going to show next week. And we'll, we'll post that on your Facebook page, on the Noblesville Facebook page, so you guys will get to see that too. Um, but we're just going to share one of those four stories. We didn't have time to edit them all. But I want to show you one of those four stories from some friends of mine, uh, Brooke and Kyle Howe. Uh, Kyle and Brooke uh, have been coming right about since the time we launched the Carmel Campus. And I wanted you to see their story. I'm Kyle Howe. I'm Brooke. We've been at Genesis for about five years. Yeah, since 2012. Yeah, so we went to the Noblesville campus first before I think this Carmel one was built um, just a few times. I think come that January, we started coming regularly here. Like I feel like it's been life changing. I don't know where we would be if it really wasn't for Genesis. It's like our first time being like a for real, like 
personal relationship with the Lord. I mean, we, we came to know the Lord here. This is the first time, like she said, that we've actually had a real personal connection. And it, you know, through Genesis, we were able to nurture that. We talked about earlier, I'm like, we kind of are, you know, Genesis mission, helping people find their way back to God. We kind of, we are that. So. And there's a lot been going on lately. Um, most recently, we felt the call to become foster parents, and it took us a while to get there, to actually, like we were talking about earlier, to discern God's voice. We felt the call, but it took us a while to actually, you know, be faithful. This has been probably the first time as, like, my walk with the Lord that, like, I've totally surrendered um, to Him and obeyed and um, it has, it's been amazing to see how he, um, I don't know, just the peace that I feel from it all, even though it's a circus and such chaotic mess sometimes in the house. And then just the, the support also since, you know, bringing the boys home, just the support from people in the church and outside of the church also. Um, it's been amazing. I don't know, it just, it's, it's good to feel that and, and know um, that we're doing His will and um, that He will continue to provide as long as we keep obeying what He has for us. Mm -hmm.